like, <laughs> we both just stared at each other. Oh. We hit the button and we're like, who's talking first? Hi. 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 <laughs> Are you freezing? It's cold. It is cold. We're having yo-yo weather in Wyoming. It's that time of the year and that's an official word in Wyoming is yo-yo weather where <laughs> the week before Halloween... It snowed. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. It snowed like a foot of snow, and it was like four degrees. It was so... I mean, I can hear it now. My boss is going to be like, you guys are so dramatic. I know. (laughs) Hi, Armando. Hey, Armando. (laughs) We love you. (laughs) He has started listening to the podcast, which is a little scary. I've talked about him quite a bit. (laughs) And I know. You're going to get fired or written up or something. (laughs) Right. And And then it was like in the 60s. And then it was in the 20s, and now, I mean, it's just, it's an official term in Wyoming, yo-yo weather. Well, and it's hard because, like, when I get to work, like, this morning, it was 14 degrees. When I left work, it was, like, 45. Right. So, like, how do you dress for that? Because by the time, 45, yes, is cold, but not comparative to 14, where I've got my long johns on and... Right. And typically, this time of the year, like, we dress in layers, right? Like, you wear, you know, like... A short sleeve shirt and then a long sleeve shirt over it and then a jacket and then throughout the day you lose layers and then as the sun starts going down you start putting them back on right Madness. but yo-yo weather it's an official term in you Wyoming only get like eight hours of sunlight right and then you know a lot of my friends are like traveling right now they just leave during this time of year so yeah. I've got a friend that's down in Cabo Ugh. got a friend that just came back from New York Got a friend that, and I'm and they come back and they're all tan and I'm like go fuck yourselves, like literally, <laughs> we're here roughing it out, you know the last last ditch effort to get as ready for winter as you can. Plugging through, man. Right, right. But right. I feel like it's gonna be a rough winter like it was last year. Whatever, we're here for it. So prepare for us to bitch about snow again. I won't bitch about snow, and you're not allowed to. Well, let's tune back into the our March episodes. Well, you're not allowed to. I'm not allowed to. You. You did complain. I was. I was. But that wasn't snow. That was ice. <laughs> the river of the ice. Yeah. I don't care about snow. It's the, you know, nine feet of ice that we had for nine months last year. <laughs> that's fair enough. That was. Okay, that's fair enough. That I feel like it's going to be rough again. But whatever. We're here for it. That's why we live in Wyoming. Okay. We're tough. Well. We're tough. All right. Today is the Samantha episode. Surprise. Like you didn't know that. Right. You heard from Tracy last, so it's my turn. So it's Samantha's turn. <laughs> Perfect. I am Tracy. I'm Samantha. This is The Suspended Sentence, and we can be found at... Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Patreon, The Suspended Sentence Podcast. Our email address is the suspended sentence Podcast at gmail.com. You can buy Tracy's book anywhere the books are sold. Um, IDP and the 13 Components to Criminal Thinking and Behavior. Boom. And we're not even saying Barnes & Noble anymore. I know. You're it's not ex- as funny anymore. You're so evolving. I don't know. I know. Well, I'll probably re- resort back to it, but it's fine. At one point, right? There was a stutter there. I thought about it. I- <laughs> All right. What are we talking about today? So we are going to be talking about wrongfully convicted people today. Ooh. Specifically Texas cases. Okay. There is an estimated between 3,000 and 9,000 Texans that are currently sentenced, um, that are currently serving sentences due to being wrongfully convicted. Yep. And Texas, I've said this a million times, loves to execute people, yep. too. Yep. So that's kind of a scary number to be out there when they are very trigger-happy with sentencing the 
the death penalty. You know, and it's so crazy to me that that many people get wrongfully convicted. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in a lot of our cases because the judicial system is set up to prevent that from happening. Like if you think about, I mean, all of the questions and the series of just the whole procedure, the whole procedure of all of it, which is why I think that so many people think if someone is convicted, they must be guilty. Yeah. Right? Because the it's the most complex judicial system in the world. In the world. And so to 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 think somebody was wrongfully convicted, you're like bullshit. Right. Every, it happens. Everybody in jail is innocent, right? Yeah. Well, a large percentage of them are. Right. But so I, I'm excited to hear these, interested in hearing these. Yeah, so I picked just a few people. And okay. um, I did get a lot of the information from um, the Texas Innocent Pro- Inno- Innocence Project oh, I love, um, website. Oh, I love them. Yeah, yeah, so I got a lot of information from them. They do, I mean. Phenomenal work. Phenomenal work. And they really are, like, they tell really good, like, stories of these people. Yeah. Um, the first one is a case that I had known about, though, because when I was in... I think it was my Texas, I had to take Texas history or Texas law um, in college when I was down in Texas. And this was a case study that we had to go through. Um, So I had heard of him before. And this one is, yeah. Okay. So Timothy or Timothy Cole, have you ever heard of him? Uh Uh-uh. So he actually died in prison in 1999 while serving a 25-year sentence um, for sexual assaults that he didn't commit. Ooh. Um, nearly a decade later, DNA evidence from the crime um, ex- would exonerate him and implied um, that another man was the perpetrator. On March 24th of 1985, a Texas Tech student um, was parking her car across from her dorm when a black man approached her, threatened her with a knife, drove her to another location um, in her own car, and then sexually assaulted her. Um, police believed at the time that the attacker may have been um, an unknown serial rapist at the time that was known as the tech, um, the tech rapist, mm-hmm. who was suspected in four other attacks on campus. Interesting. Um, several officers began conducting surveillance around campus. Composite sketches based on descriptions from victims appeared all over Texas campus, um, as well as in the Texas Tech newspaper. Um, but Tim, Tim Cole was a 24-year-old Army veteran who was majoring in political science at Texas Tech at this time. On the night of the assault, Tim was studying at home where his brother was hosting a party attended by five other individuals. Two weeks later, Tim visited a friend at a local restaurant, and as he was leaving the restaurant, Tim was, um, spoke with a female detective in plain clothes who decided that he looked exactly like the composite sketch of the rapist, and the following day, day detectives went to Tim's apartment and took a Polaroid photo of him. Detectives then showed the assault survivor um, survivor a photo lineup, including six color um, photographs. Tim's was the only Polaroid. Yeah. And we, how many times? Let's say it all together. Eyewitness. <laughs> Eyewitness testimony is not reliable. Right. Especially, and this is a thing, for different races. Absolutely. It's very white women well don't go into it because it's, it's going to come a, across it, yeah you know but it I mean? is a, it's very, a very it's much a thing. real thing absolutely um so <clears throat> detectives then showed the um 
the assault survivor a um, photo lineup. Um, oh, I just said that. Whoa, I can't read. Um, the other five were um, standard mug shots. His was a Polaroid. Right. So it looks significantly different than the rest of the, the photos that are shown. Mm-hmm. So he already is standing out. Uh, Tim was also looking directly at the camera in his photo while the suspects in the five mug shots were side facing. Mm-hmm. And according to police, the assault survivor then immediately was sure that Tim was her attacker, saying that's him. The next day, police conducted an in-person lineup with Tim and four other prisoners. Um, The survivor then again identified Tim. One of the survivors of a similar assault, as well as two other women who had filed police reports about a black man acting suspiciously on campus, viewed the lineup, um, and they did not identify Tim. Hmm. So based on the recent um, sexual assault survivor's identification, Tim was arrested and um, charged with aggravated sexual assault. And Tim was never, um, he was never charged with committing the other assaults, but he was charged in a separate attempted kidnapping of another on-campus girl. That charge was later dismissed, though. In addition to the testimony of the assault survivor, a forensic um, examiner from the Texas Public Department of Public Safety testified that there was semen um, that was present in her rape kit, and tested the test found evidence that it was a type A blood. What year was this? Do you re- in the eighties? In the eighties, so DNA was very very infant stage, right, right? Which was Tim's blood type. Which, which mean, is, yeah. Most of the world is A or B. Right. The analyst also testified that pubic hairs collected from the rape kit had similar characteristics to Tim's pubic hair, um, but said that the analyst conducting these tests could not reach a firm conclusion on 100% it was his. Mm-hmm. Right? Because like you just said. Yeah. They're not testing hair follicles at this point. They're not. They're yeah. just like, it looks the same. <laughs> sure. Jesus. So Tim's a- I was just about to go really, really inappropriate, but I'm not going to. I know it went through about probably 90% of everybody's Everyone's head. head. Right. Tim's attorney presented um, the alibi defense that he was studying at home where his brother was drinking with several friends. Right. All of mm-hmm. these people had seen him at home that night. Um, his brother and the friends all testified that Tim had been at the apartment at the time of the attack. And Tim also presented evidence that he had severe asthma and did not smoke cigarettes as the perpetrator had done while he was committing the crime. So hmm. he was smoking cigarettes and Tim's like, I have horrible asthma. Like I, I don't, I don't smoke. smoke. <laughs> uh, Tim's attorney attempted to enter evidence that um, similar attacks had continued to occur the months after he had been arrested. But the judge refused to refused to allow most of the mentions of the uncharged crimes before the jury. Interesting. Mm-hmm. His attorney also attempted to present evidence that um, a very similar attack had occurred one month before the assault for which Tim was charged. The, and that fingerprints from the victim's car in that case did not match Tim's fingerprints. The judge also did not allow this evidence before the jury. Damn. After six hours of deliberation, the jury did convict Tim. The next day, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. Tim's initial appeals were denied, and in 1995, after the statute of limitations on the 1985 sexual assault had expired, a Texas prisoner named Jerry Wayne Johnson wrote to judges and the trial prosecutor in Lubbock County, as well as Tim's defense attorney, saying that he 
was the one that had committed the sexual assaults. Johnson was serving a life plus 99 year sentence after con um, convictions for two sexual assaults with similar characteristics by the, um, as the attack that Tim had been convicted of. Johnson's letters were not, not acknowledged and Tim died in prison of an asthma attack in 1999 without ever learning that Johnson had been attempting to confess to this crime. The year after Tim died, Johnson wrote again, uh, Johnson wrote again to a supervising judge, and this time the case was moved to a different judge and rejected without any comment. Yeah. Eventually, though, in May of 2007, Johnson's most recent um, confession letter reached the Innocent Project of Texas and Tim's family. And attorneys at um, the Innocent Project of Texas sought out for more DNA testing. Like, it's yeah. 2007. We have come leaps and bounds at this point. Um, and the Lubbock prosecutors cooperated with this. They were like, sure. So DNA testing conducted on the semen um, from the crime scene um, excluded Tim and implemented Johnson in the crime. Jesus Christ. <laughs> During a hearing in February of 2009, Johnson again confessed to the crime before a judge, Tim's family, and the victim herself. The presiding judge um, officially exonerated Tim in a ruling April on April 7th of 2009, and Governor Rick Perry pardoned him on March 1st of 2010. Oh, well, thank you. He's dead. Rick Perry, yep. thank you mm -hmm. for the pardon Yeah. after he's dead. That yeah. means so much. Thank you. Soon after this, the state of Texas passed the Timothy Cole Act, increasing compensation paid to exonerees of $80,000 per year served. So his family received all of that because he served, what, 15, 14 years? I bet that they would give every penny of to that have back the, yeah, to have him back. 100%. 100%. Expanding services offered to the exonerated after their release and adding compensation to the family of an exon um, exoneree if cleared after death. The state also created the Timothy Cole Advisory Panel on wrongfully, Wrongful Convictions in 2009 to study and help prevent wrongful convictions in the state. 2014, a 13-foot bronze statue of Tim was dedicated in Lubbock um, as the young man looking for, toward the Texas Tech University, which is so sad. He's just, like, trying to, like, he's just going to school. Yeah, and that's so disrespectful in my opinion. They did give him an honorary degree of law, Nobody in cares. law and social justice. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that you do all of that. It's a little bit too late. Little too little too late. Yep. So that's Timothy Cole. That's, that's our first disrespectful. And you can make as many laws and do as many whatever as you want to after the fact. Like literally, why don't you just go stick your middle finger up in the family's face? Why don't you put the money and the resources to stopping corrupt ass judges? Yeah. And, and what about the girl who wrongfully convicted him or that, that wrongfully identified her? She should be prosecuted. If you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt, 100% who the person is that did it to you, sit down and shut up. Yes, I am sorry that that happened to you. I am sorry that the trauma that you endured, you had to endure. I am so sorry. But if you don't know 100%, shut the fuck up. Yeah. You Especially guys sexually assaulted. Somebody died. Well, especially the not fact... Not that there's a comparison, and I didn't mean to say it like that. That's not right. what I mean. But seriously. Well, and my thing, too, is Johnson, he had been writing since 95, four years before Tim died. Mm -hmm. 
And the judges just were like, which I, I'm sure that there are people that make false confessions from prison that are never Whatever. Get out. You have an obligation to, to look, look into it. it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is it should have at least been looked at. <laughs> that pisses me off. And I, that pisses me off so bad. If I was the family, like literally, I would be out for freaking vengeance. Like literally. My kid is dead. Mm-hmm. And you, little Missy positively identified him a hundred percent he's the one like they clearly clearly convicted him based a hundred percent off of eyewitness testimony a hundred percent which is only 40 percent accurate and the fact that he had type a blood and because he had type a blood jesus christ it's not wild oh man i would be suing her like a civil action for i mean if you if you call the police for something and report a false crime that's a criminal offense. Yeah. Why is this not a criminal offense? I don't know. That's a good question. And Texas is so, like you said, so trigger happy. And so just like, oh, we got our man, conviction, case closed, move to the next, whatever. That I'm, And the judges not allowing all of the evidence in, right. that should be illegal. Because it, pro- it sounds like Johnson was responsible for most of the campus rapes. Right. But, but take Johnson out of it. There was good evidence that went against the state that the judge threw out and wouldn't even let the jury hear. And why are we not looking at the other eyewitnesses of the six people that said 100% he was at home studying? Right. Right. I mean, I have a theory, but I'm not going to say it because I don't... (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I'm just going to continue to make you more and more pissed as we continue on this. This pisses me off so bad. a few more here. Judges have too much fucking power. Yeah. They have too much power. I feel like you shouldn't be able to, like, limit what is brought into evidence. Also, in an addition, if you appeal something, it should go before a different judge, not the same I judge. Agree. I agree. We've talked about that with, I mean, for top of my because head, Because no Lambert. judge, no judge is going to overturn his own ruling. No. That should be like a federal, clear across the board. If something gets appealed, a different judge should look at it. Then, of course, you're going to have professional courtesy or whatever. However, at least you have a shot. Right, because it's a little bit of ego has to come into that too, right? Like Not I stand a little behind, bit. I stand behind my judgment. Yeah, and judges hate it when you freaking question the hate it. I've, I've known enough district court judges that most of the time they won't even look at it. They just reject them. Anyway, okay, cool. Well, that was a great one. Thanks, Sam. Next. On to the next. In the fall of 1994. Just like the court system. Next. Oops, he's (laughs) dead. Okay, well, next. Cleared out a jail cell for the next innocent person we're going to throw in a cell. See, I'm just going to get her nice and riled up for you guys today. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful of his family or friends or anybody that loves him is listening. I'm on your side. I'm just, God, that pisses me off. Mm Mm-hmm. Fall of 1994, Elizabeth Ramirez and her three friends, Anna Vasquez, um, Cassandra Rivera, and Christy Meja, are accused of sexual assault of, of Elizabeth Ramirez's two young nieces. Oh. Prior to the accuse, uh, accusation, Elizabeth had rejected the advances of the children's father, um, Javier Lemon. All four of the women um, were out as they, they were openly lesbians. Um, and, and, in fact, that color, colored the investigation into the exact accusations of the case against them. The women cooperated with authorities and vehemently denied that any abuse had taken place. 
The allegations came in the wake of more than a decade of national hysteria over this satanic ritual abuse of children. Yeah. Um, And the phenomenon known as satanic panic, resulting in numerous wrong convictions for crimes involved in abuse. Apparently that was like a big thing. It was a big thing. 1980 to 84. Huge. In March of 1995, all four women were indicted on, um, on charges of aggravated assault of a child. They rejected offers to plead guilty for reduced sentences, maintaining that they were innocent, and they took it to trial. Ramirez went to trial by herself in Bexter County Criminal District Court in February of 97, and on February 6th of 97, the jury convicted Ramirez of aggravated assault of a child and indecency with the child. She was sentenced to 37 and a half years in prison. The following year, in February of 1998, the three other women... Vasquez, Meja, and Rivera were tried together and were sentenced to 50, each sentenced to 15 years in prison. Interesting. At the trial, Dr. Nancy Kellogg, a professor of pediatrics from the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, testified that she examined the girls and saw evidence of healed scars on the older girl's hymen. Kellogg testified that the scar was a physical evidence of sexual molestation. In her notes, Kellogg speculated that the acts were satanic-related. How do you know that? She testified to it. How do you know that? I don't know. She testified that they were satanic-related. And although Kellogg admitted um, on cross-examination that she could not tell how old the scar was or whether it was a result of an accident, she um, indicated it was sexual abuse and it was satanic related. So she's like, I don't really know, but this seems like sexual abuse and satanic. In my professional opinion and my experience with satanic rituals, I would say that. 100% that's what this is from. In both trials, um, prosecutors won convictions by um, discounting the many inconsistencies in the girls' testimonies and argued that the inconsistencies were outweighed by the scientific testimony of the pediatrician. The theme was repeated um, in all of their appeals as well. In 2010, the Center of Wrongfully um, Wrongful Convictions began aware of an attempt, and they contacted the Innocence Project. They accepted the case and began to redo their investigation. Also in 2010, the younger victim recanted her trial testimony and stated that she and her sister had made false claims after being pressured by their father, Javier. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Anna Vasquez was released on parole in 2012, while the others remained in prison um, and the Innocence Project worked to secure their releases. As part of the investigation and with the cooperation of the Bexter County District Attorney's Office, they obtained copies of the original photographs taken of the girls during their 1994 sexual assault examinations performed by Dr. Kellogg. An independent expert examined the photographs and concluded that there was no physical evidence of any trauma. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Confronted with the findings, Kellogg um, signed a sworn affidavit saying that she had known what subsequently learned about sexual abuse forensics. She would not have testified that the evidence shown showed any physical signs that the girls had been, ever been molested. What? She said, knowing what I know now, no, I don't think that they were molested. I'll sign an affidavit to that. And signed an affidavit saying, oh, I was wrong. Oh, I wasn't well trained back then. Oops, my bad. Sorry. 
you're an expert in pediatrics. The 90s, we're not talking like the 1500s here. We're talking the 90s. <laughs> oh, my God. So, um, the Innocence Project filed a petition for a right of hybetus. Did I say that right? I, well, you just asked me, so I can't say it. Okay. Hybetus corpus on behalf of the four women that included their... Habeas corpus. What did I say? Hibius something. I don't know. <laughs> okay. We know that I can't say words. It's fine. Well, it's like an Italian word. It's fine. Um, on behalf of the four women that included the recant um, by one of the girls and the new findings from Dr. Kellogg's inaccurate testimony, as well as a physical psychological exam- examination of all four women and the girl who had recanted her testimony. Bexter County District Attorney's Office agreed to relief on the basis of inaccurate scientific testimony that tainted the trial, but took no position in the actual innocence claim. They were like, oh, that's unfortunate, but... So the girls were released on bail in November of 2013. April of 2015, the judge who presided over the second trial in 1998 held a evidentiary hearing on the issue of actual innocence. And in February of 2016... That judge declined to recommend that the women were actually innocent, and so the women had to start appeals. Yeah. Same judge. He's not mm. going to overthrow his own sentence. He's not going to do that. Yep. And on November 23rd of 2016, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted the writs and va- um, vacated the conviction for all four women, ruling in favor of them on actual innocence and... Um, pretty much was just like this was very poor very poor work on the court's behalf here no finally in 2016 so 94 to 2016 they finally all four women released jesus christ and there is nothing worse is there to be accused of than sexual sexual crimes against a child no again was javier or whatever his name is was he charged he should be because he absolutely like, used these small children. Jesus Christ! <sighs> it, no, like absolutely threatened them. 100%. Absolutely threatened them to make them lie. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! December thirty first, nineteen eighty, body of Beverly Ann Jones is discovered near the Trinity River in Dallas County. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Her boyfriend, James Woodward, became a suspect when Jones's stepfather told police that on the night that she was murdered, James had come by the house looking for her. On New Year's Day, James was arrested and charged with murder and sexual assault. He went, on, went to trial on May 18th of 1981, and a neighbor testified that she saw James arguing with the victim the night of her murder. She identified him, although it was 3.30 a.m., and she was several hundred feet away from him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Woodard, um, Woodard presented an alibi witness who testified that he had not been with Jones on the night of the crime. And despite no physical evidence tying him to the crime, he was found guilty on May 21st of 1981 and sentenced to life in prison. Mm-hmm. Once again, eyewitness testimony. Without any physical evidence. At 3.30 in the morning, dark, hundreds of feet away, I can't. I can't see that far, or hundreds of feet away. Well, like, I'll tell you, I know you really, really, really well, and I can spot you in a crowd, but 
at 3.30 in the morning in the dark from a football field away, I would not be, I would be like, is that Sam? I don't know. Right. Like, that's, what the heck? Um, so he lost his appeals and his letters asking District Attorney um, Henry Wade to reinvestigate his case were completely ignored. Yeah. Woodard began filing applications for writs of habeas corpus. Perfect. Six separate writs were denied or dismissed by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, usually on the grounds that he was abusing the system by filing too many applications. Mm-hmm. When the law was passed making DNA testing available, Woodard began seeking testing. His first request languished for three years um, before the state responded in 2004 by saying that there was no evidence for the needed for him to test. His appeals were again denied. Woodard wrote to the Innocence Project of Texas, who, in cooperation with the Dallas DA's um, Conviction Integrity Unit, tracked down the missing biological evidence in the case at the Southwest Institute of Forensic Sciences. The evidence was tested um, on December 18th of 2007, and James was not. There was no DNA linking him to her. Jesus Christ. A further investigation showed that prosecutors had evidence that Jones um, was with three men the night that she was murdered, including two later convicted of unrelated sexual assaults. The evidence was withheld from James's defense attorneys. April 21st of 2008, a forensic pathologist submitted a sworn affidavit concluding that the rapist and the murderer were the same person and that James's DNA was not a match. On April 30th of 2008, James was released and his charges were dismissed. How long was he in jail? Uh, so, 80 to 2008. Oh, Jesus. September 30th of 2009, Woodard was pardoned by Rick Perry. Aw, Rick Perry, you're doing such a great job. You're doing so good. Just takes you 30 years to get around to it. All of the life lost. Yeah. Not, yeah. Like, even if, like, yes, he's out now and he's. Doesn't matter. He lost 30 years of his life. Absolutely. So sad. Oh, it's not sad. It's infuriating and disgusting. A couple more here. Um, Mickey Bryan, a fourth grade teacher in Clifton, was found murdered in her home on October 15th of 1985. Her husband, Joe Byron, a school principal, was attending an educational conference 120 miles away in Austin at the time of her death. Police initially investigated Mickey's death as a burglary resulting in homicide, but Mickey's brother, Charlie Blue, traveled to Clifton after her death and hired a private investigator. While in Clifton, Mr. Blue borrowed Joe's vehicle. Four days after borrowing the vehicle, Mr. Blue told authorities that he opened the trunk and found a flashlight with what appeared to be bloodstains on the lens. The specks of the flashlight lens were, in fact, human blood, type O, the same type as Mickey's, and approximately 50% of the population. (laughs) Right. In 1985, blood typing was, like we've said, not a very... uh, it wasn't very advanced. <laughs> it wasn't very advanced. Right. <laughs> Despite being 120 miles away at the time of the crime with no clear motive, Joe was arrested on October 23rd of 1985, eight days after Mickey's death. Joe's trial would take place in March of 1986. In addition to a public um, pro- um, prosecutor, a special prosecutor was hired by Charlie Blue. 
with no eyewitness who could place Joe even in Clifton at the time of the murder, no motive, no forensic evidence that tied him to the crime scene, the prosecutor's case rested largely on that flashlight. A bloodstain pattern analysis who worked, whose work has since been debunked and recanted um, provided testimony that linked the flashlight to the crime scene. I'm sorry, it's his wife. There's a flashlight in your car that has, like, a drop of your blood. Like, that to me is not, like, smoking gun. Also, in addition, if you did it, would you honestly turn the freaking evidence over to the law enforcement? Right. No, you wouldn't. You would wash it off, spray it with bleach, and get on with your life. Exactly. During the trial, a detective... That was not telling you how to, to get rid of evidence. <laughs> During the trial, a detective stated that the linked... Um, During the trial, a detective stated that Joe was the beneficiary of a $300,000 life insurance policy, and that was his motive. No, that's not weird. (laughs) It's not weird for a spouse to be the beneficiary. Joe was convicted and um, sentenced to 99 years in prison. Jesus Christ, and he had an alibi. 120 miles away, not like a quick little jaunt. In February, uh, February of 1988, Joe was released when a three-judge panel conducted um, a tr- conduct- concluded that the trial judge erred when um, denied a defense's request to reopen testimony late in the trial. The judge had prevented Joe's attorneys from reading a disposition with a Brian's insurance agent, which the agent refuted that the claim that Mickey's death was worth, quote, worth over 300000 to Joe. The actual value was less than about half of that amount. Mm. The ruling made no determination as to Joe's guilt or innocent. DA's office um, retired Joe in June of 1989, and the district attorney was again um, was again assisted by the special prosecutor, and they summoned largely the same witnesses who appeared in the first trial. Prosecution's examination of the crime was short. Uh, that shortly after speaking with Mickey on the phone at 9.15, Joe slipped out, of the ho- slipped out of the hotel and drove 120 miles to Clifton through the very heavy Texas rain, shot Mickey, with whom he had no history of conflict, got through the heavy rain, um, got rid of that pistol, took the jewelry, kept the flashlight specked in his blood in his trunk, and drove back to Austin. That's what they were saying happened. Yeah, that makes complete sense. <laughs> he then re-entered his hotel room in time to clean up and attend the conference the next morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's wild. In 2016, um, Innocence Project filed a complaint that the Texas Forensic Science Commission, who reviewed the blood pattern and said that 100% like this has nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. 2018, um, Innocence Project presents new evidence, including the statements from, about pro, um, potential suspects. And um, they start going through more. They're like, you know, some of our techniques are way more advanced than they were. Like, let's look back into it. They secured a patrol attorneys to assist with Joe's parole hearing in March of 2020. And numerous character witnesses, including author um, John Grinchin. Oh, nice. <laughs> which is cool. Um, who provided statements to the board of pardons and paroles. Joe was granted parole and released on March 31st more than 30 years after being wrongly, wrongfully convicted of his wife's murder. 2021, they filed a petition with the Supreme Court to review Joe's case on actual innocence. Supreme Court denied to hear the case. 
all legal, um, all current legal avenues to prove that Joe is completely innocent have been exhausted. Have been exhausted. There you go. So this is something that I thought was interesting here. So on the website, on the Innocent Project's website, it says the path um, to exoneration is a, we all know, very long. Yes. I didn't realize how expensive. Oh, yes. The average cost for somebody to be exonerated for a crime is $235,000. Correct. With the average exoneree spending at least 14 years in prison. Correct. Correct. Okay. What was the theme in every single one of those cases? Judges. Yeah. So if any state wants to revamp their criminal justice system and stop throwing innocent people in prison, you've got to look at your district court judges and you've got to look at the appeal process. If you're not going to look at your district court judges who are elected, y'all, you guys Mm -hmm. all vote in your district court judges. Yeah, that's true. And I've said this a million times, justice is only served when people who are not affected by it care as much as those who are, but we're all affected by it, all of us. This is our tax-paying money. Yeah. Tax-paying money that's going to house innocent people in prison when that money, if they were not there, could be you know, distributed somewhere else to education, to roads, to bridges, to parks, to you know, social security benefits, to other things that would benefit society way more than innocent people in prison at any rate if you don't want to address that and you don't want to pay attention to what's happening in your own counties in your own cities in your own states in your own country cool continue to be irresponsible i disagree with your thought process there but if you want to do that (laughs) fine then legislators and senators the appeal process needs to be revamped a hundred percent do not send appeals in front of the same judge that made the ruling The appeal process should go, I like the three-judge panel. Yeah, me too. I really like that. I like that idea. That way, I mean, that's their job. They don't see other cases. They don't whatever. Twice a week or whatever, they, you know, they see a judge. They hear a person in prison, whatever, and they review a new freaking person in prison who thinks that they're innocent. Now... There are, everybody in jail, everybody in prison is innocent. That's, I mean, everybody says that, right? And I think you get jaded and you get desensitized to the whole criminal whatever thing. But if it was your son, if it was your daughter, if it was your loved one, if it was somebody that you knew who was falsely Mm -hmm. convicted, you would want their story to be told. It's disgusting to me. The criminal justice system is disgusting to me. Yeah. And if you want to, I mean, there's an innocence project for pretty much like every state. Yeah. Um, and if you just go to the website in whatever state you're in, you can go and read these stories. I mean, yeah. there's, I promise, a lot more on there. Oh, yeah. And they, and, and these are just cases that they can take. They are so overworked and have so many cases waiting to be heard. Mm-hmm. And also, if you, I mean, there it's a nonprofit. You can donate to them. Yeah. Which, so. I mean, would be, they do amazing work. They yeah. do phenomenal work. Absolutely phenomenal work. So, well, I mean, and it's, I think it's important to read these, though, because, like, you don't even realize, like, 3000 to 9000 in Texas alone. Yeah. And we've talked about how expensive it is to house people, and if there's 
9,000 in just Texas alone that are not, don't need to be there. Right. Well, and their contribution to society, that alone, you know? And then all of these people accusing people wrong. And here's the other thing is when law enforcement screws up, like somebody should be held accountable for this. Yeah. This shit would not happen if people were held accountable. Mm-hmm. Oops, sorry. Here's $80,000 from the state of Texas. Forget this ever happened. No. The last one, Joe, that one makes my, like, A, he will never be able to say he's 100%, like, you know. Yeah. And, A, you're grieving the death of your, the murder of your wife. And you're being accused of it. And now you've served 30 years in jail for it. Did he get the insurance money? I don't know. Because he's not going to be able to get a job. It's only 150 Or Social Security or retirement or anything else because he's a convicted felon. For, and that's the thing, too. I I don't know. I think the whole, like, oop, you're out of chances yeah. is bullshit, in my opinion, honestly. Like, unless there's, unless there's not a reason. Like, just to do it, just to do it is one thing, but the whole... But he was, <clears throat> if you've been released because they're like, oops, sorry, that evidence wasn't good. Yeah. I think you should get another chance to, like, fight for yourself and advocate for yourself. He can't. If you're out... It, don't even get me started. I, <laughs> I knew this one was gonna rile you up. Yeah, it did. It did. Well, thanks for bringing that, Sam. That was that was. It riles. It's riles you up because it's important, though, and because it's infuriating that that's something that can happen. It can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. There was what that through all the DNA testing stuff now is like that guy that was arrested. I can't remember where this was, and I'm gonna butcher the story probably. He did the DNA, ancestry DNA. Yep. Came back, linked to a crime scene. He was like, and it was like his fourth cousin that had done it. They had yep. just enough shared DNA. Yep. Yeah. Uh. Mm. All right, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Stay safe. <laughs>